We started billionaires, and this is episode 82 of the Investors Podcast. Broadcasting from Bel Air, Maryland, this is the Investors Podcast. They'll read the books and summarize the lessons. They'll test the waters and tell you when it's cold. They'll give you actionable investing strategies. Your host, Preston Pish and Stig Broderson. Hey, how's everybody doing out there? This is Preston Pish, and I'm your host for The Investor's Podcast. And as usual, I'm accompanied by my co-host, Stig Broderson, out in Denmark. On today's show, we're having New York Times bestselling author and world-renowned economist Jim Rickards on. This is the second part interview, and the main topic of this episode is Jim's new book, The New Case for Gold. So let's just jump right back into the interview and continue where we left off. So Jim, one of the main ideas you talk about in the book is how the U.S. came off the gold standard in 1933 and it helped stop the deflationary spiral that uh, we were in with the Great Depression. This time around, you suggest that if the U.S. would create a dollar peg, among other things, but uh, to create a dollar peg to gold at a higher price, say $10,000, it would potentially create the inflation across all the other asset classes due to the enormous devaluation of the dollar. Although I would agree this would have an impact I think that the situation we're in today is slightly different than 1933. So back then, the public debt was significantly lower than it is today. And additionally, uh, this new gold standard wouldn't fix the inherent issues with the main deflationary forces, which is the income and wealth inequality. We can't get people to spend money that they don't have or somehow possess equity that they don't have. So what are your thoughts on this idea? Preston, that is the most uh, densely packed question anyone has ever asked me. It's a brilliant question, by the way, and you make a number of very, very important points, and I'll address them, but uh, there's a lot there, so let me uh, let me unpack it a little bit. So let's start with how I get to $10,000 gold and your reference to 1933, and I would go back a little bit earlier to 1925. In World War I, the major combatant nations either went off the gold standard completely or at least suspended shipments of gold because they knew they needed gold to fight the war. So the gold standard that was very successful from 1817 to 1914 broke down in World War I. Now we're in the 1920s and the countries want to get back to the gold standard. They have an international monetary conference in 1922. So finally, come forward, 1925, Winston Churchill is chancellor of the Exchequer. John Maynard Keynes is an advisor to the Exchequer. Parliament's about to pass an act that would um, basically reestablish the gold standard. And the question is, at what price? What should the price of gold be? And Churchill felt that it should be the pre-World War I price, which was approximately $20 an ounce. Of course, it was in pounds sterling, but for listeners, about $20 an ounce. And he did this really as a point of honor. He said, well, paper money into gold is a contract, which it is. And we have to honor the contract. If that was the old price, that's going to be the new price. Otherwise, we're not honoring the value of the pound sterling. But Keynes said, and Keynes was actually correct on this. He said, well, look, that's fine. But you double the money supply to fight the war. You print it twice as much money to fight the war. If you want to go back to a gold paper parity, you have to do one of two things. You either have to double the price of gold to reflect the new money supply, or you have to cut the money supply in half. But you you have to do one or the other. But if you don't, if you go back at the old price, you're going to have to reduce the money supply, and that's going to be extremely deflationary. Churchill blundered. Churchill took the old price. He, went, he ignored Keynes. He took the $20 price. As Keynes predicted, England had to contract the money supply to maintain the parity. That was highly deflationary, highly depressionary. It contributed to the Great Depression. It put England, uh, UK, in a depression four years before the rest of the world. By the way, it's given gold a bad rap ever since because everyone says gold caused the Great Depression. Gold did not cause the Great Depression, but a politically motivated price of gold did. And 
Churchill later admitted that was the greatest blunder of his uh, career because, uh, as you say, he threw his country into a depression. Now, so now come to today. So I'm not saying we will definitely have a gold standard. I'm saying we probably will when things get bad enough. But if you want to have a gold standard or even a gold reference price of some kind, it begs the question, what's the price? And today, if you... um if you went back at the, the so-called market price, leaving aside manipulation, it's about $1,250 an ounce. Given the amount of paper money in the world, given the amount of gold in the world, if you go at $1,250, that's going to repeat Churchill's mistake. That will be extremely deflationary. You would have to drastically reduce money supplies, which would be a mistake. So let's revive the ghost of Keynes. What is the implied non-deflationary price of gold today? Given the money supply, the answer is $10,000 an ounce. Now, there are different ways to calculate it. You Look, every gold standard is some ratio between paper, money, and gold. That's all it is. But you have to answer some questions. What is my definition of paper money? Is it M0, M1, M2? These are all different definitions. Number two, who's in the club? Is it just the United States or is it nations around the world? Number three, how much gold backing do I want? 20%, 40%, 100%. So those are all inputs. Those are variables and they're legitimate policy debates. I use a global M1 with 40% backing. When you do that, you get $10,000 an ounce. By the way, if you took global M2, a larger number, with 100% backing, you get $50,000 an ounce. Now, I'm not predicting $50,000 gold. I am predicting $10,000 gold, but my point is, those are the, that's the price range at the low end, $10,000 an ounce, that you must have to avoid deflation on a gold standard. And basically, and everyone knows this. I mean, I've spoken to Paul Volcker about it. They won't talk about it. Volcker does privately because he's sort of retired. But the Bernanke and others I've spoken to, they won't have the discussion that we're having right now. But they, they get it. They're, they're economic historians. They're scholars. They can do the math. And they understand that that's the price of gold. That's why they don't want to talk about it. Now, I know you had a conversation with Bernanke over in Japan. What did you guys talk about? Was it a long conversation or was it pretty quick? It was uh, about a half hour. We had some uh, private time. It was kind of interesting because um, when I wrote The Death of Money, my second book, I used Bernanke's research. Uh, he's a scholar, but long before he was a central banker, he was a very noted scholar. He was at Princeton University and he was the leading scholar of the Great Depression. Now, of course, you have Milton Friedman, Anna Schwartz sort of paved the way with their monetary history of the United States. But Bernanke is a younger generation following their footsteps had written quite a bit on the Great Depression. And one of the things that struck me, and this is Bernanke's own research, because you often hear that the gold caused the Great Depression. I just explained why that's not true. It was politically motivated uh, price of gold, but also that gold constrained action in the Great Depression. The central banks could have been more aggressive increasing the money supply if they hadn't been on that, you know, dopey gold standard, so to speak. So this is part of the, the wrap on gold. Well, but what Bernanke showed is that by law at the time, the money supply in the United States was allowed to be 250% of the gold supply. So take the gold, market to market at $20 an ounce, and then two and a half times, that's how big the money supply could be. The actual money supply was never more than 100%, which means that the Federal Reserve had the ability to more than double the money supply while still on a gold standard without violating the law. So the blunder was not gold, had nothing to do with gold. It was a failure of discretionary monetary policy. If you say to the Fed, hey, you could double the money supply with a gold standard and they don't do it, whose fault is that? Do you blame gold or do you blame the Fed? So that's the way I read it. So when I, when I had the opportunity to talk to Bernanke, I teased him a little bit because I had um, 
been one of the people who helped to stand up the uh, Center for Financial Economics at Johns Hopkins University. And uh, we searched for a center director, as you always do, and got a very senior, brilliant, distinguished PhD monetary economist from the Fed to come in as our director. And he was, well, he wasn't even there two years when Bernanke took him back to the Fed. Bernanke picked us off. So I teased him a little bit. I said, Mr. Chairman, <laughs> you, you, you picked off my center. He said, well, we gave him back to you, which is true because uh, uh, the, the scholar in, in question, he, he's back at the center. So, uh, but anyway, I actually had a copy of, uh, of his book with me. And uh, I know as an author myself, I know that you never turn down a request for an autograph. So when I asked him for his autograph, he very happily signed it. So I have an autograph copy of Bernanke's book. But on a serious note, I said, Mr. Chairman, I said, I read your research to say that gold was not a constraint on money supply in the Great Depression. Do I have that right? And he looked at me and said, yes, you do. So I have it straight from the horse's mouth that don't blame gold for the Great Depression. But again, it's another one of these myths that you hear over and over. Oh, we can't have a gold standard because it caused the Great Depression. And it's just simply not true. Fantastic. I love your quantitative discussion when gold performs well and when it doesn't. As far as I'm concerned, you're like one of the first people that's ever written a book that actually lays out some math and quantitative value for how to kind of look at gold and when it performs well. Everything else just kind of seems like it's black magic as far as I'm concerned. I really don't like it when uh, people say gold goes up when there's fear in the markets. And the discussion that you have in your new book really kind of dispels that. And you talk about areas where you do see it go up and go down. For me, the dollar price of gold is a function of fiat credit expansion and contraction. And you describe in an even better way and detail that with nominal versus real interest rates. Can you talk to our audience a little bit about this idea and what environment gold prices do well when compared to domestic currencies, interest rates, and inflation? Sure. I'd be glad to, Preston. And, um, and you're right. This is a, it's kind of a tough one because it starts with... Uh, uh, a concept, a uh, mathematical concept that the French call the numeraire. And the numeraire is nothing more than how do you count things or how do you measure things? So let's say I have two individuals and uh, there's a football field and I give one of them a, a rule or a, a one foot rule and I give the other one a yardstick and I say, hey guys, go out there and measure that football field. Well, the guy with the rule comes back and says it's 300 feet long. And the guy with the yardstick comes back and says it's 100 yards long. Well, is it 300 or 100? Well, it depends what you're using to count. And the same thing is uh, applies when it comes to gold. If you privilege the dollar, if you say the dollar, the U.S. dollar is the measure of all things, that's how we're going to measure the football field. Then people look at gold and say, well, it's up or it's down. You know, it's 1250 an ounce and it's down to 1200 an ounce or it's 1900 or it's whatever. That's how they, they tell you the price of gold. But, you know, what if you're using a different measuring stick? Or what I do actually is I use gold as the measuring stick. I use the weight of gold. And then when I look at the price of gold, I say, well, when people say gold is $1,050 an ounce, I say, no, a dollar buys you at one one thousand fiftieth of an ounce of physical metal. And when gold is $1,300 an ounce, I say no. Uh, a dollar buys you one thirteen hundredth of an ounce of physical metal. And in that scenario, I wouldn't say the price of gold went up. I would say the dollar went down. The value of the dollar went down. Purchasing power of the dollar went down, measured in gold. So right away, you have to go sort of through the looking glass and think about how you're going to measure things. So that's that's the starting place. But specifically uh, to your your question, Preston, people are very confused about interest rates because they'll, they'll say, you know, interest rates are at an all-time low or interest rates are near an all-time low. Well, nominal interest rates are close to an all-time low, but real interest rates are not. And what's the difference? The real interest rate is just the nominal interest rate minus inflation. So let's say you have a 5% interest rate and you have 3% inflation. Well, the real interest rate is 2%. Because if you borrow money at 5%, 
but there's 3% inflation. You get to pay the money back in cheaper dollars. What you're paying back doesn't have as much real value. So the real cost of the 5% loan in a world of 3% inflation is actually 2%. That's the real cost. I remember when I got my first mortgage in 1980, it was uh, 13%. My mother cried because her, her first mortgage was like 2%. I said, but mom, I've got a 13% mortgage, but inflation is 15%. So my real cost money. is negative too. And, I'm, and taxes were 50%. It was tax deductible. So on an after tax basis, I was making four or 5%. So the bank was paying me to be a borrower. But that's, that's the thing. In other words, when interest rates were 13%, the real interest rate was lower than it is today because of the impact of inflation. So right away, you got you to gotta put that inflation factor in there if you want to see what's going on. And interest rates today actually are pretty high because inflation is so low. This is why Europe is chasing, well, this is why Europe has negative interest rates because they're trying, Europe is trying to get to a negative real rate. A negative real rate is one where the bank pays you to be a borrower. You get to pay them back in cheaper dollars. There's no project that doesn't make sense in a world of negative real rates because it's like, hey, you're paying me to borrow the money. What's 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 the big deal? I'll, if I lose money, I still make money. So, but as inflation gets lower and lower, you have to take the nominal rate lower and lower to get to a negative real rate. So it's you're chasing your tail. It's like nominal rates are chasing inflation down, trying to pass them and get to a lower level so you can have negative real rates. And it's not working because the inf inflation continues to fall. There, by the way, we could spend an hour on why, uh, why this is all true, but just uh, to make the point, if the interest rate is negative 1%, sounds low, right? But let's say uh, inflation is actually deflation of negative two. What's the real rate? Well, it's negative one minus negative two. When you, when you subtract a negative, you add the absolute value. The real rate is plus one. It's still a very high real rate. It's expensive money. Negative 1% is expensive money if inflation is negative two because the real rate is plus one. Now we're through the looking glass, right? Subtracting negatives. It's, it's not, I mean, the math isn't that hard, but it's a little bit counterintuitive. So that's the world we're living in. But just to, to cut to the chase, Preston, gold loves a negative real rate. Because the world of negative real rates is the world of higher dollar prices for gold because what's the wrap on gold? It has no yield. Okay. But if real rates are negative, then uh, gold with no yield is, a, is the high yield asset. Zero is greater than any negative number. So if interest rates are negative and gold has a zero yield, you have a positive yield on gold. Gold is the high yield asset. Perfect. In your book, Jim, you clearly distinguish between paper gold and physical gold, and you highlight the risk of the former market easily being a hundred times bigger. Could you please explain why investors that might think that they are invested in physical gold might only be exposed to the price of gold and uh, which other risk it uh, entails? Well, um, be glad to stick. You know, when you hear the phrase paper gold, just take a take an eraser and erase the gold part. It's one of the great oxymorons of all time because it's just paper. But I'll make the distinction. So physical gold is easy. It's it's bullion. It's, you know, American gold eagles. It's a, a one kilo bar. That That's physical gold in safe non-bank possession. I don't recommend putting it in banks because that'll be the first place it gets locked down in the next financial crisis. You'll, you won't be able to get your gold. That's no fun. So, um, so, there, but there are reputable non-bank vaults uh, readily available. I don't, I'm not in the business of recommending vaults, but there are names like Brinks, Dunbar, Loomis, others. They, Brinks has been around for over a hundred years. They're bonded, they're insured, they're reputable. Uh, but there are other less well-known vault operators. Just, you know, make sure they have insurance, make sure they have better business bureau rating and get some references and uh, you know, do your homework on that sort of thing. But but safe non-bank source, that's physical gold, so that's easy. So let's talk about paper gold. 
comes in three flavors. There's uh, the COMEX futures contract. There's the ETFs, the exchange traded funds. And then there's what's called unallocated gold from the London Bullion Market Association, LBMA. These are the big gold dealers. That's, we know it's Citibank and JP Morgan and Goldman Sachs and HSBC. So, you know, it's a, it's a half a dozen or so, maybe 10 or so uh, big banks. So let's take them one at a time. Let's take the COMEX gold futures. Well, I can call my broker and buy a futures contract on gold. And if gold goes up, I win. I make money on that futures contract. And I don't have to get my hands dirty with physical gold, no storage costs, et cetera, just a commission. What's wrong with that? Well, what's wrong with that is that futures contracts allow for physical delivery. So as the holder of a futures contract, I can sell my contract back to the market and just take my profits. I can roll it over into uh, another month to keep my position open. Or I can give delivery notice. I can tell the exchange, hey, I own this futures contract. Please give me the gold. And they will allow you to do that. And they'll ship the gold to, uh, to a designated place. The problem is the amount of gold in the warehouse is about 1% of all the futures contracts outstanding. What do you think would happen if all the holder, all the long holders of gold futures contracts all called up once and said, give me the gold? Well, clearly they wouldn't do it. They couldn't do it. And guess what? They don't have to. I'm enough of a geek that I've read the rule books of all these exchanges. They actually say in the rule book, we are not a source of supply. In other words, they allow for physical delivery just to keep the trading honest, just to keep the physical paper arbitrage in line. But they're not, they don't consider themselves gold dealers. They're not, they say we're not a source of supply. And they also have a rule in the rule book that says they can change the rules. You know, you go back to the Hunt brothers uh, when they cornered the silver market in 1980 and the exchange changed the rules and everybody whined, oh, you, you know, you exchanges, it's all rigs, you know, you change the rules. Nah. They have a rule that says they can change the rules. So they also have uh, another rule that says in the event of disorderly markets, the Board of Governors can issue emergency orders. So they have all the tools they need to say, sorry, you know, you 100 people lined up for the one bar of gold. You've got 100 bars of gold, long futures. We got one bar of gold in the vault. You all want it. Sorry, you can't do it. You can trade for liquidation only, which means you can roll over your contracts. Or they could terminate the contracts at the close of business yesterday and send you a check. Now, they won't actually steal your money. They'll send you a check for yesterday's close. But what you want is today's price. Because when is this going to happen? This is not going to happen in calm times. There's conditional correlation. This is going to happen when there's a full-scale buying panic going on. So you're going to be sitting there, price of gold up $100 an ounce, up $200 an ounce the next day, up $300 an ounce the day after that. You're going to be watching the price of gold go up on television, but you're not going to be able to get your gold. You're going to get a letter from the COMEX saying, here's your check for you know yesterday's price or two days ago's price. So you're not going to, you're not going to get the protection exactly when you most need it. See, that's the, that's the other thing people don't get. The time when these contract clauses and exchange rules are invoked to deny you your profits will be exactly the same time when your profits are the greatest because there's correlation between panic and emergency action. Same thing with the ETFs. People say, well, I own GLD. That's uh, I don't want to pick on GLD, but that's the ticker symbol. That's the biggest ETF. So I own gold. No, you don't. GLD is a share of stock trade on the New York Stock Exchange in a trust that has administrators and trustees and authorized agents. So yes, there is a vault in London that does have gold in it. I'm not saying there's no gold anywhere, but you can't get it. All you can do is sell your stock, right? What if the stock exchange is closed? People say, oh, well, that would never happen. Guess what? The New York Stock Exchange was closed for five months from July to December, two th- uh, sorry, July to December, 1914. 
The New York Stock Exchange was closed for five months. It was closed in Hurricane Sandy. It was closed after 9-11. It's closed every weekend. It's closed on holidays. I mean, the New York Stock Exchange closes all the time. So the exchange is closed. You can't trade your shares. And by the way, they can also uh, suspend trading and send you a check for yesterday's price. The last one is, uh, to me, the most insidious of all. It's called um, the LB- LBMA Unallocated Gold Contract. So there I call up. And I, I call up JP Morgan London and say, hey, guys, I want to buy a million dollars worth of gold. And they say, okay, send us your million dollars. Here's a contract. Sign here. You own the gold. That contract calls for something called unallocated gold. And this goes back to our billionaire friend, Kyle Bass, when he went to Hong Kong. He said, where's my gold? They go, well, it's all over the place. <laughs> in, in other words, you don't own any physical gold. You have a sort of a claim on gold. But they could have one ton of gold and sell one ton each to 100 investors. They could sell 100 tons of paper gold for one ton of physical gold. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Don't just ride the index. Seek to outperform it with Fidelity Active ETFs. Learn more at fidelity.com slash active ETFs. Before investing in any exchange-traded fund, you should consider its investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Contact Fidelity for a prospectus, an offering circular, or if available, a summary prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully. While active ETFs offer the potential to outperform an index, these products may more significantly trail an index as compared with passive ETFs. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC. Our friends at Coriant provide wealth management services centered around you. Coriant's goal is to exceed your expectations and simplify your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. They are one of the largest integrated fee-only U.S. registered investment advisors, and Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. They have extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. The teams at Coriant put the collective power of their expertise into building you the custom wealth, investment, and family office solutions that can help you reach your holistic financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, speak with an advisor today at Coriant.com. That's spelled C-O-R-I-E-N-T dot com. That's Corient dot com. When Rain Wilson had a great idea, he turned to AT&T Business. They assured him no matter how out there his idea may be, they had his back. So he came up with this, a talking pillow designed to put you to sleep, backed by a reliable network in the only network with built-in security controls. And thus, Sleep with Rain was a hit. Take your business to the next level at business.att.com. That's business.att.com. All right, back to the show. It almost sounds like these multiples of a hundred sound. I don't. I just don't know how that could be legal. And I know you're a lawyer <laughs> as well, Jim. So I guess you could talk to the specifics of that. But in, instead of that, let's go on to the next question. Uh, one of the billionaires that Stig and I study a lot is Ray Dalio. And uh, Dalio has this saying that financial markets find themselves in a risky situation when nominal growth does not exceed nominal interest rates. This is also something that you mentioned in your book. And whenever I read it in your book, in your new book, The New Case for Gold, it just immediately like a light bulb went off. I was like, oh my God, Jim is saying the exact same thing that Ray Dalio is always preaching as well. So could you talk this idea a little bit more with our audience and kind of share where you kind of see where we're at in the market in April 2016? 
Ray's exactly right. And there's no better illustration of this than the United States of America. So what's happened with the budget deficit? Why do we not hear about the budget deficit? Remember, you know, the fiscal cliff and, you know, shutting down the government and all this battling between Republicans and Democrats in the White House in 2010, 2011 about shutting down. Why do we not hear about that anymore? Well, the reason is that the budget deficit dropped from about $1.4 trillion in 2011 down to about $400 billion today. That's a dramatic drop. And they actually did, the Congress and the White House actually did bring the budget deficit down by over a trillion dollars in the last four years. Okay, deficit's down to $400 billion, that's correct. But it's still 3% of GDP and, and GDP is only growing at 2%. So even with the progress, the deficit is still going up faster than the economy is growing. And that's Dalio's point you're still going broke. Now you're going broke a little more slowly than you were, but you're still on the path to Greece. So just think of it this way. Let's say um, you have a job and you have a credit card and uh, your boss is giving you a a 2% raise every year, but your debts are going up 3%. You're going to go bankrupt. It might take a little while. You you can kind of pay the minimum or whatever, you know, song and dance with your credit card, but you're going to go broke. So that's the, the basic maths. If your debts are going up faster than your growth, you're going broke. And that's true in the United States, even with the progress now. But there's another even deeper point that Dalio is making, which is when he uses the word nominal, because go back to our discussion on uh, real interest rates, nominal interest rates. Nominal growth is real growth plus inflation. Okay. So what Dalio is saying is, well, there's another way out of this debt trap, which is we don't have to have real growth, but we do have to have nominal growth. So you can layer a little inflation on top of that. So let's say that the debt is going up, the nominal debt is going up 3% a year. Well, if real growth is 2%, which is which is a problem, but you can have 2% inflation so that nominal growth is 4%. Now what's happening? Now your nominal growth is greater than your debt and you're coming out ahead. So there are two ways to solve the debt problem. One is real growth, which is good. Everyone likes that. But if you can't get real growth, get some of the phony baloney nominal growth, which is real growth plus inflation. So what Dalio is saying is that we're not even doing that. Like not only does real growth stink, nominal growth stinks because we don't have any inflation to speak of. So you can win the debt game if, if nominal growth goes up faster than nominal debt. And so, but behind that, hidden behind that is the idea that you don't actually need real growth, but you do need inflation. And this is what Janet Yellen's trying to get. And she said, it goes back to Mick Jagger. You can't always get what you want. This, every, the math is simple. Everyone understands the math. Janet Yellen understands the math. The question is, she can't, the point is she can't get there. So I guess my point to Dalio and whoever else is trying to get there, let's look at Japan. They can't get there. They've been spending, through, I mean, they're buying equities through ETFs at this point. They're, they're trying to get there so bad and they can't. So I guess from when I'm looking at it, can we get there? without a 1922 Germany situation? Well, there are two ways to get there. One is the, the one you mentioned, Preston, which is 1922 Germany, which is, you know what, if you print enough money, you, just, you have to put the pedal to the metal. And this is what Paul Krugman is talking about. Paul Krugman, he's notionally right. I don't think he's right in terms of what's best for America, but his math is correct, which is that Krugman looked at the $900 billion stimulus bill in 2009 that was... Uh, Larry Summers, Christine Romer were the economists and they were in the White House at the time and President Obama signed on, the Congress passed it. $900 billion uh, stimulus spending bill. Krugman said that should have been $2 trillion. Uh, you know, you want some stimulus, do it right. But the problem, this goes back to something you said earlier, Preston, when you were talking about velocity. 
just to explain velocity, velocity is the turnover of money, right? So uh, let's say it's it's the evening. I've got two choices in my life. I can go out to dinner and you know tip the waitress, and the waitress can take a taxi cab home and tip the taxi driver, and the taxi driver can take some tip, take the tip, and put some gas in his car, right? In that example, my money has velocity of three. You got the waitress tip, the taxi tip, and the gasoline purchase. So one dollar turns over three times, so it produces three dollars of GDP. That's velocity of three. But what if I stay home and watch the final four and do nothing? My, my, my money has velocity of zero, right? Because I didn't spend it. So velocity is just the turnover of money. Nominal GDP, and that's what Dalio was talking about. Nominal GDP is just the money supply. But trying to get nominal GDP up, trying to get inflation up, is like trying to make a ham and cheese sandwich with ham. You need the cheese, right? <laughs> so money supply is the ham, and velocity is the cheese. You want a ham and cheese sandwich, which is nominal GDP, you need ham and cheese. The Fed can control the money supply to like a decimal place. They can stick the landing. They can make the money supply whatever they want. But velocity is psychological. It's a psychological concept. The Fed can't make you spend money. They can't make me spend money. They have to lie to us. They have to sort of, this is now we're into behavioral economics, psychology, the velocity problem, which is psychological, that, yeah, if you if you don't have money, you're not spending money. You're absolutely right about that. But you could be pretty wealthy. You could be well-established in the middle class. You could have a rising income, and yet you don't feel like spending money because you're concerned, you're troubled. You know, like, I want to save more. I want to pay off my debt. I want to deleverage my personal balance sheet. And that is a psychological problem that may be with us for a generation. I, I think what happened in 2008, you know, going back to the sequence we described, you know, 1998, Asian financial crisis, 2000, the dot-com bubble, 2007, the mortgage crisis. So just taking this uh, sequence that we talked about earlier, 1990, uh, 1998 with the long-term capital crisis, 2000 with the dot-com, 2007 with the mortgage crisis, 2008 with AIG Lehman. At some point, people have been on the, they want to get off the roller coaster. They've seen these crashes enough. They just want to get out. And this is why negative interest rates are not working. You know, the theory of negative interest rates, which we, we today we have in Europe, Switzerland, Sweden, Japan is spreading around the world. The theory is pretty simple. It's like, hey, you got $100,000 in the bank? Go back to our uh, velocity example, right? I want to make you spend it. I'm, I'm saying to you, you know what, Preston, you know what, Steve? If you leave your money in the bank, I'm going to take it away. That's what a negative interest rate is. You put 100000 in the bank, a 1% negative. You come back a year later, you got 99. They took it away. So if you want to sit on your money and have zero velocity, we're going to take your money away. So you guys, you better get out there and spend it, right? So that's that's the, the gun to the head about kind of going out and spending money. But it seems to be having the opposite effect. People are saying, well, wait a second. If I'm not getting any return on my money, I better save more to make up the difference, okay? I better put some more money in the account because you're taking it away. So the savings rate actually goes up. And then as far as spending is concerned, people say, well, what message is the central bank sending with negative interest rates? They're sending a message of deflation. Deflation means lower prices. So I'm going to defer my spending decisions because the prices are going to get lower. I'm going to go out and get a bargain six months from now. Why should I buy it today? So negative interest rates, which are intended to encourage spending and increase velocity, are actually increasing savings and deferring purchases and diminishing aggregate demand. It's, it's a typical PhD play. Like they, they come up with a theory. The theory is completely wrong. The model's wrong. And the behavior is the opposite of what the banks want. So you've got all these uh, unintended consequences floating around. You're not getting the velocity you want. Income inequality is certainly not helping. And that's a serious social problem in and of itself. So, uh, you know, getting back to, uh, you know, the whole theory of uh, nominal growth being lower than nominal rates, 
We're not, we're not getting the nominal growth. We're not getting the velocity. We're not getting the turnover. It's a psychological problem. I think you have a group of savers and investors who have been scarred for generations. It's not going to be easy to do. So the question is, how do you get to Weimar? Well, there, there are two ways there. One is if you print enough money, just print, forget $4 trillion, take your balance sheet to $8 trillion. I'm talking about the Federal Reserve, $12 trillion. At some point, people just say, hey, I'm out of here. You know, I'm, <laughs> I'm dumping these dollars because you guys are not going to stop. You're going to, by the way, do you know, in, you may know in, in Weimar, Germany, the constraint on the money supply was paper and ink. They, they were, I mean, they, they wow. no, I'm I serious. Didn't know that. They actually at one, and I have a, I have a, uh, I have a, a specimen. At one point they started printing the money on one side to save ink. So I have like a, a trillion Reichsmark note and it's printed on one side. The other side is blank because they were trying to save ink. And the government was like commandeering printing presses. There was, there were physical constraints on, on producing money. So we don't have that today. We have uh, electrons are free and they can print all they want. So I suppose you could do it that way. But the other thing you have to do, the other thing you can do, I don't see this in the short run, but it's very possible in the long run, is just to fix the price of gold. See, I can get inflation in 15 minutes. Here's what you do. You call a board of governors meeting, you go in the room, you lock the door, you take a vote, you come out 15 minutes later, you stand in front of a microphone, you say, uh, ladies and gentlemen, the price of gold as of now is $5,000 an ounce. And we're going to use the gold in Fort Knox and West Point to back up that price. So if you think that price is too low, Come and get it. If you think the price is too high, sell us your gold. We're a, we're a buyer at forty nine ninety five. We're a seller at fifty fifty. We're going to make a market. We're going to peg peg the price of five thousand dollar gold. If you do that, you've got the inflation because nothing happens in isolation. If you have five thousand dollar gold, oil's going to four hundred, silver's going to one hundred, gas at the pump is going to be ten dollars a gallon. No, it's not that gold goes up; everything goes up because that's the de facto devaluation of the dollar. And if you use the gold in Fort Knox, by the way, quick aside, people ask me all the time. Who controls the gold? Is it the Fed or the Treasury? And I say it's the U.S. Army. The gold is in two army bases. Fort Knox and West Point are army bases. So the Army's got the gold under lock and key, but um, assume they play ball with the Treasury. But but the point is, you could declare, you could, by fiat, you could declare that gold is $5,000 an ounce. You could make it stick by open market operations, uh, buying it when it's low, selling it when it's high, give the people freedom to buy and sell the gold to the government, and then gold would be $5,000 an ounce. And then you would have... 80% inflation overnight. So you can either just do the Weimar thing, just print till you run out of ink or electrons, or peg the price of gold to $5,000. So those are, by the way, those are the only two things that work. Because how do you change the psychology? Everything they're doing is failing, is having the opposite effect. This is a very tough problem. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. If you're looking for the right franchise concept at the right time, an iFlex Stretch Studio franchise is the business for you. iFlex is the newest franchise concept from the founders of the Joint Chiropractic. With over 200 licenses already awarded to our regional developers, there's never been a better time to own an iFlex franchise in your market. An iFlex Stretch Studio franchise offers its clients the best in professional-assisted stretching for one affordable price in one beautiful location. Even the Mayo Clinic says stretching can increase flexibility and improve your joint's range of motion, helping you move more freely. Prime regional developer opportunities and franchise locations are going fast. Don't miss this opportunity to get into this rapidly growing health and wellness business from the founders of the Joint Chiropractic. Find out more today. Call 888 or visit iFlexPodcast.com. Call right now, 888-994-3539 or visit iFlexPodcast.com. Kyle, you're connected with a ton of different investors and portfolio managers, and you're just really in the know on a lot of these things. How do you keep up with all the day-to-day headlines for your portfolio companies? 
Yeah, so I used to have a ton of issues with this, and that was until I started using Yahoo Finance. Really? What's so great about it? So Yahoo Finance is awesome. I have my whole portfolio entered, and I can easily see all the top headlines to keep up with the recent news, and each day you get an overview of the major global events that might be moving the market, so I'm ready to easily pounce on any opportunities that come my way. What else can you do on Yahoo Finance's platform? They also have a number of cool features, including a tool that lets you link all of your investment accounts, analyst ratings, and independent research, as well as the ability to create customized charts. Well, now I know that the audience is really going to love this one. And I actually see they have 90 million monthly active users. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. All right, back to the show. Fantastic. Jim, uh, thank you so much for helping us with these two episodes. Uh, The last question I'm going to ask you is, other than your own books, what are one of the best resources you ever come across through the years that has drastically increased your understanding of the market? Well, after my experience at long-term capital, I set out on a a kind of a 10-year personal odyssey because I was the lawyer there. I was just not to wash my hands of it because I was very involved in writing all those contracts, but I I was a lawyer. I was not the head of risk management, but, and I lost a lot of money personally in that. And I, you know, I don't fault anyone but myself for that because I made those decisions, but I was sitting there. I said, wait a second. And and they're all good guys. They're friends of mine. I was like, wait, we had 16 PhDs. You folks went to MIT, Harvard, Yale, Chicago, Stanford. You're the fathers of modern financial theory, two Nobel Prize winners, seasoned traders. And obviously you got this disastrously wrong. Everything you thought you knew must be wrong because otherwise this wouldn't have happened. So I set out on a kind of personal odyssey to figure out two things. Number one, what went wrong? It took me about five years and and I did figure that out. But then I kept going. I said, well, if those models, the models that we're using don't work, are there models that do work? Are there better ways of, of thinking about this? And this is kind of what set me apart from Nassim Taleb, author of The Black Swan, your great uh, bestseller, great book. Taleb took a baseball bat and demolished the bell curve. He just pounded it into sand. He said, the bell curve doesn't work. Risk is not normally distributed. Your value at risk models don't work. It's all junk science. And he was exactly right. But then he kind of stopped there, threw up his hands and said, you can't model this. See you later. I'm going to be a philosopher. I wasn't satisfied with that answer. I, I agree completely with Taleb about demolishing normally distributed uh, risk and, and the bell curve, but I wanted to sort of build new models that would work. Uh, one is complexity theory. One is behavioral economics or behavioral psychology. And the third one is something called inverse probability or, or Bayes' theorem. And interestingly, I found kindred spirits in the national security and the physics community. And it teaches you about risk in complex systems, how systems break down, how risk is an exponential function of scale. And that's a big deal because when you triple a system, so let's say I triple the size of JP Morgan's balance sheet and I went to Jamie Dimon and said, you know, Mr. Dimon, you tripled your balance sheet. How much did the risk go up? He would say, well, almost zero because, you know, we tripled it, but it's long, short, long, short, long, short. Everything pairs off. Everything hedges everything else. Boil it all down to zero. And you know, it's a very small thing. 
If you ask my mother, who's uh, she's a, a brilliant woman, but non economist, she's 85 years old, said, Mom, I tripled the balance sheet at JP Morgan. How much did the risk go up? She would probably use intuition and say it went up three times. Well, Jamie Dime is wrong and my mother's wrong. When you triple as the scale of a system, the risk goes up exponentially. It goes up maybe 10 times or 100 times, depending on all the factors. And that's what's happening in the banking system. And that's why the next crisis will be much worse than 2008. Uh, but that's good science. That's physics. And that's what I brought from physics. Behavioral psychology, I think that, that ground is pretty well known. Uh, even some PhD economists are starting to use it. Kahneman, Tversky, and Early and others, and lots of experiments to show that we are not rational as economists define it. We, we have all kinds of risk aversion and other behavioral things that you have to take into account. And the third thing I really learned in working with the United States intelligence community, because you use it at CIA and elsewhere all the time, which is Bayes' theorem. Bayes' theorem is a tool that lets you solve problems when you don't have enough information. A statistician like Janet Yellen would say, give me lots and lots and lots and lots of data and I'll do the regressions, look for the correlations and that'll guide policy and all that. Well, that's fine if you have the data. What if you don't have the data? 9-11 was one data point. What if your job is to look out for the next spectacular terrorist attack, which is the job of the intelligence community? That's your job. What are you going to do? Wait for a thousand attacks, you know, three, th- three million dead, and then say, well, I have enough data now. I think I can solve the problem. You don't have enough data. How do you solve problems when you don't have enough data? You know, the disappeared Malaysian airliner, you had one of those. You know, how do you, how do you solve it? That's where Bayes' theorem comes in. Uh, and I use that quite a bit. So Neil Johnson wrote a book called Simply Complexity. Great title, but again, good, but uh, rigorous, but accessible layman's introduction to complexity theory. Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. Not an easy read, a, a bestseller. I'm not sure how many people actually read it, but it's a summary of all that he's done in 30 years of behavioral research. So you can go dig out all those papers if you want, but the most important ones are printed as an appendix to the book. And then he kind of goes all through all the literature. So if you want one book that'll take you through all behavioral economics in uh, about 500 pages, uh, that's the one. And for Bayes' theorem, there's a there's a book called The Theory That Wouldn't Die. These are books that I recommend. I get a lot from history, a lot from uh, Schumpeter, as I mentioned. So these are the sources that have influenced me. And I think that 30 years from now, Talking about complexity theory and Bayes' theorem and behavioral economics and um, behavioral psychology and economics will be kind of the conventional wisdom, but right now it's not the conventional wisdom. The Fed and other central banks are still using value at risk and uh, stochastic general equilibrium models and things that are just simply obsolete. So, Jim, I know I'm talking for our audience when I say, wow. (laughs) This interview was just phenomenal. We are just so thrilled to be able to just have this discussion in front of our audience for them to listen to this and just have access to your just brilliant mind and all the research and hard work that you've done through all the years. For anybody else out there that's kind of listening to the show and you want to know more about Jim Rickards, first of all, he has a book called Currency Wars. He has another book called The Death of Money. And now he has a new book and it's called The New Case for Gold. Jim, if people want to learn more about you or they want to go to your website, could you kind of give them a handoff and tell them where they could learn more about you? And I also follow your Twitter, which is fantastic. You have a, a lot of great posts on Twitter for people that are looking for more current events. But where else could they find you, Jim? Uh, thank you, Preston. Sure. My uh, my Twitter feed is at James G. Rickards. I use my middle initial G for George. So at James G. Rickards. It's about 90% international monetary economics and uh, 10% Phillies baseball. So you got to take the, take the good with the bad. Uh, my website is uh, www.jamesrickardsproject.com. Uh, Rickards, by the way, is R-I-C-K-A-R-D-S. So www 
jamesrickersproject.com. A lot of resources there. The Twitter feed we mentioned. And then, of course, my, my new book, The New Case for Gold, covers a lot of what we, we talked about in this interview. And the first two books, um, Currency Wars and The Death of Money, were macro, top-down, critiquing the system, making recommendations for the system. The gold book, The New Case for Gold, a little bit more of a manifesto, a little bit shorter than the other book saying, look, I'm still trying to fix the system. I'm still trying, still trying to help policymakers. But just in case they're not listening, here's what's going to happen. Get yourself some gold. But I want to give people reasons why. I never make a claim or never make a recommendation without giving the backup, the research, the history, the analysis. It's all there. And But I had written about gold in my other books, kind of one chapter here, a couple chapters there. And I said, you know what? I need to sit down, put it all in one place. Everything I've learned, everything I know, everything I've experienced, put it all in one place, make it easy for the reader. So that's the new case for gold. So uh, Preston Stig, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you for inviting me on the show. It's been a great conversation. Really enjoyed it. And I hope the, uh, hope the listeners enjoyed it as well. I'm sure they will. As Jim is dropping off this call, I just want to thank everyone for listening. Before I'm letting you go, I just want to give you a quick shout out for the free executive summaries that Preston and I type up and send to you twice a month. You can sign up on our website where you can find the 35 summaries that we already did. Also on our site, you can find the link to a free Audible book, which is basically a free book from Preston and me to you. You can also claim your free book on audibletrying.com forward slash the MS podcast. That was what we had for this week and see you guys next week. Thanks for listening to The Investor's Podcast. To listen to more shows or access to the tools discussed on the show, be sure to visit www.theinvestorspodcast.com. Submit your questions or request a guest appearance to The Investor's Podcast by going to www.asktheinvestors.com. If your question is answered during the show, you will receive a free autographed copy of the Warren Buffett Accounting Book. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. This material is copyrighted by the TIP Network and must have written approval before commercial application. 